Well, it's really good to be with you. Um, those of you who don't know me, I used to be Greg's boss for two or three years. And I have to say, I'm very grateful to you for starting this church and, and getting him off my hands. <laughs> I'm actually only 25 years old. But the time with Greg aged me. It was, it was a hard years, but uh, anyway, here we are. First time I've been on Sunday, it's really good to be with you. And I thought, as I was here for the first time, I would preach on the most depressing passage in the Bible. Um, Ecclesiastes, a great and strange book. So uh, let me just um, approach God's word with, with another prayer. Would you, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, 403 years ago, almost to the day, the Holy Office in Rome submitted two propositions to its theological experts for assessment. These were scientific claims. The first proposition was this, that the sun is the centre of the universe and it is immovable of local motion. In other words, the sun stands still. The second proposition was this, the earth is not the centre of the universe, nor immovable, but moves according to the whole of itself rotating daily. In other words, the earth goes around the sun. Now, five days later, the uh, venerable Catholic theologians announced their conclusions. They were unanimous. They declared that the first statement was foolish and absurd philosophically and formally heretical. And the second proposition they also kicked out. So the Roman Catholic Church officially declared against Copernicus and against Galileo, who had defended this Copernican theory of motion of the heavenly bodies. Yet how many people today would agree with them? I'm sure we all believe that the earth revolves around the sun and that it turns. Now, I don't mention this today to talk about the relationship between science and theology, but it is a striking picture of the relationship between us and God. It's important to know who is at the centre of the universe, isn't it? To know whose life revolves around whom. And here's the thing, every human being is born believing that we are the centre and that God and everyone else should revolve around us. We just assume this is the way to make life work. Those of you who have children will know this is hardwired into them, that everyone else should revolve around them. If only I could be free to be at the centre of my own personal universe, with everyone revolving around me as my personal assistants, then I can make life work. But, according to the Bible, that would be the equivalent of arguing that the sun should revolve around the earth. And the problem is it really doesn't work, because reality isn't set up like that. So when we try and live like that, we eventually find that things fall apart. Now, this is the burden of the book of Ecclesiastes. We just read the final chapter. It's a really a strange book. Somebody has described it as the Bible's resident alien. It's a type of writing called wisdom literature, which was well known in the ancient world. We've got some other examples of it in, in the Bible. Uh, the book of Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, these are all wisdom books. But compared to the other Bible books, Ecclesiastes sounds quite unorthodox. The author never tells us his name, but he identifies himself with the title, The Teacher. And The Teacher sometimes sounds like he's given up on God, but he's actually using that as a device to make us think and to teach us 
wisdom. And in the book, the teacher explores all the different ways that human beings try to find meaning and purpose in life. He tests these ways. He tries it all. And then he declares, and he keeps saying it, that life under the sun is meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. We read that in our chapter today. It was also, it's, it's right at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, like two bookends. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And this Hebrew word, which we translated there, meaningless, is the word hevel, which literally means breath. So he says everything is breath. And the idea of breath carries within it something transient. It, it's here and gone. Something empty. Something impossible to control. You can't grab and control breath. It, it, it evades you. All of that idea of transience, emptiness, impossible to control, all of that's rolled up in this one word, hevel, breath. And he says, everything's hevel. I've seen it all. In the book, he tells us about his journeys in education and knowledge. He's a great student. His power and privilege, pleasure and fun. He's, he's explored all the pleasures that human beings love. He's enjoyed great wealth. He's carried out great projects, grand designs of houses and gardens. And again and again, he weighs these things and he finds that they are heavy, mere breath. And here in chapter eight, sorry, chapter 12, he ties it all up in verse eight there on page 677. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. But is that it? Is that really all that life is, a cosmic joke? Not at all. This is a strategy to make us think again, to make, to make us wake up from the deluded fantasies of life that we so often entertain. He is saying that life under the sun is meaningless. And life under the sun is life as if there's no God. The sun is the highest you can get. There's nothing above. Remember John Lennon's uh, famous song, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven, no God above. It's life under the sun. And this writer is using God subtracted as a kind of theological shock therapy to wake us up, make us see things as they really are and live according to God's reality. And here in chapter 12, we find him tying together all the different strands of his book with a simple but profound message. And here it is. Remember your creator, revere God, for this is true humanity and everything matters. Remember your creator, revere God, for this is true humanity and everything matters. In other words, God is the sun and we are the planets and we need to make sure our lives revolve around him because that's true humanity. So this is about restoring our perspective and that's important all the time and I think particularly important as you establish this new church here in Chalton. The early years of church planting are very exciting and actually very challenging, aren't they? It's hugely rewarding and it's very tiring. Because of course, here's the church, but the rest of your life is rolling on as well. It's possible to get so wrapped up in our lives that we lose perspective even while serving in church. And when we lose perspective, we can quickly lose the passion for serving Jesus because it feels like a lot of hard work, which it actually is. And if you're a younger person, then there's a special message for you in this text. And by the way, my definition of a younger person is going up all the time. Um, it says here, remember your creator in the days of your youth. 
Why does he say that? Because when you're young, you're setting the course for the rest of your life. The decisions you're making now shape who you're going to be. I've known Christians who were really serious about following Jesus in their teens, their 20s, but life came along. Career, mortgage, children, twins, <laughs> holidays, money. And then one day they woke up and realised 20 years had gone by and they drifted a long way from Jesus. They never meant to. It was just like the tide rolled in and swept them out. Now, it's never too late to turn around, thank God, but it is better not to live with the regret of years that were eaten up by locusts. So this is very important for us today, all of us, to set our spiritual perspective. And I see two main points in this passage, and they both begin with R. Firstly, remember, and secondly, revere. Remember, verses one to eight. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Now, last summer I went to a university open day with uh, a young man who attends this church, Will, and we were being shown around a college, wonderful ancient medieval building, and we were attending introductory talks and things, and the town was flooded with visiting parents and students, and I've never in my life actually seen so many uh, parent and child pairings in one place. At one point we were standing around being told about this college and I looked around and there must have been 20 adult and parent and child pairings. It's absolutely fascinating, very striking to see the resemblance between the parent and the child but 30 years <laughs> separate. So you could see, you could see the, the similarity and, and, and how, how the years had, had uh, played out. Now, what do you notice when you stand a 17-year-old woman side by side with her 47-year-old mum? Some things are quite similar. Some things are the same, but time does take a toll. <laughs> even on those parents who've clearly taken good care of themselves, even on the lucky few with good genes, time takes a toll. And for many of us, the years have not been so kind. <laughs> At one point, I whispered in Will's ear, you realise this is what you're going to look like in 30 <laughs> years' time? And his face fell. <laughs> Tragedy. Just imagine if we could stand not just two, but three or four generations side by side. What would it look like? Now, this is why cosmetic surgery exists and why it is big business. Who doesn't want to reverse the effects of time? How is it that actors and celebrities look so good? Money. <laughs> One of the few honest ones is Dolly Parton. I wish I'd thought about this. I could have got Christina to, to read this quote out. <laughs> Dolly Parton once said, if I see something sagging, bagging or dragging, I'll get it nipped, tucked or sucked. <laughs> now, Ecclesiastes 12 is all about that. It's a really haunting poem. It shows the inevitability of aging and the waning of human life but it does so in poetry to make a powerful impression on us. Look at what it says, uh, verse two. These are about the years when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Verse two, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after rain. Things go dark. There's an undoing of creation. It's as if nature is being reversed here 
The sun and the light and the moon and the stars are going dark? How can that be? Creation is being undone. Things go dark. This is the effect of aging. Things go dark and the storm rolls in and the clouds keep blanketing the sky even after the rain. It says here, the clouds return after the rain. And all these things echo the Bible's creation story in the beginning of Genesis. And the language of them going dark is like the unmaking of creation. Just as God made every person, so at the end every person is unmade. Great Bible scholar Derek Kidness said, all this will come at a stage when there is no longer the resilience of youth or the prospect of recovery to offset it. In one's early years and the greater part of life, troubles and illnesses are mostly setbacks, not disasters. One expects the sky to clear eventually. It's hard to adjust to the closing of that chapter, to know that now in the final stretch there will be no improvement. The clouds will always gather again and time will no longer heal but kill. In verse three, he continues, the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking out through the windows grow dim. This is an image of a house, but it's growing old and decrepit. And these are poetic ways of talking about our declining powers as human beings. The keepers of the house are your hands. Once they were so strong, could do things, but now they're getting weaker and growing limp beginning to tremble. The strong men are your legs, now no longer able to bear their own weight. The grinders cease. What do you think the grinders are? The teeth, but now not grinding so much because they are few and you're not that hungry. And those looking out through the windows are your eyes. Sight grows dim over time, you can't avoid it. One day we will all wear glasses and the prescription will grow stronger and stronger until sight is gone. We have a man in his mid 80s at Grace Church, wonderful old saint called Donald Lees. He said to me one time, I hope I die before I go blind. That's honest. The doors to the street, he continues, are closed and the sound of grinding fades when men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. This is an image of peace being disturbed and fear coming in. People get up at the sound of birds. Old ages don't sleep so well, but you know, no one sleeps like a baby. But here there's this sort of irony that sleep is so light that the sound of a bird can wake you, and yet the songs are growing faint at the same time. You're growing deaf. And with the decline of powers, fear floods in. Verse 5, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, how could you not be afraid? I've been really struck over the years to see once confident and very competent men and women lose their confidence in their 70s. But why should we be surprised by that? When your powers go, so does your confidence. Verse five says we're afraid in every direction. Now this next part of the verse is difficult to understand and interpret. It says the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along. Desire no longer is stirred. The sense seems to be that nature itself has cycles of growth and decay, blossom and decline. And we're not exempt from that, are we? Uh, we too will decline and depart from that cycle of life and go to our eternal home and mourners will go back the streets. 
Now there's a cheerful thought for Sunday morning, isn't there? <laughs> What's the point of all this? Why is he exposing the ravages of age? It's because we need to hear it. We need to think about our mortality. And there's actually no more important message that we could think about this morning because you won't hear this anywhere else really. You certainly won't hear it in Western culture, which is death denying and living in a fantasy of eternal youth and not even able to talk about aging and death. Here's the big takeaway. Remember your creator while you still can. This command to remember is so important that he repeats it at the start of the poem and at the end, verse six, remember him. Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well. Remember him while you still can. Now the golden bowl is an image of a lamp. It's beautiful. It's there, it's golden, it's giving light to all around, but it's held by a silver cord and one day it will snap and the bowl will smash to the ground and the light will go out. The pitcher at the spring smashed, the wheel at the well, these are images of drawing water. We come back to the well, we drink water, life is renewed, but one day the pitcher will break and we will no longer be able to draw water. Light, water, two of the most common Bible images for life. He's saying that life will run out. You know those antique hourglasses where they had two glass chambers and sand is in one of them, a little bit in the middle. And the sand is running down gradually and it shows you the passing of time. We have this expression, the sands of time. Limited in duration, always running down. How far down has, has the sand gone for me? I don't know. But I know it will run out one day. So don't be a fool. Remember your creator while you still have time in the days of your youth while time is running out. And this is especially important for young people who feel like they're invincible. They feel like they can do anything. They can recover from any injury. They're strong, nothing can hurt them, but they're not. You know, if you're a younger person, the old age will creep up on you unawares. It's just around the corner. Terry Pratchett said, inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. <laughs> Remember him, your creator in the days of your youth. And you may be saying, okay, I see that now. You know, I, I've got the memo. I, need, I see the need to get my planet revolving around God, who is the sun. I accept this life is short and I'm small and God is great. But what does it look like? What does it actually mean to remember your creator? And the answer is given in the second half of the chapter, verses nine to 14, which teach us not just to remember God, but to revere him, to revere him. And it says here that this is the path to true life. In other words, we remember God by living in reverence toward him. Verse nine, not only was the teacher wise, but also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The conclusion of the whole book here ties it all together. And you can summarize this, how to revere God with three Ps, pain, perspective, and preparation. Pain, perspective, and preparation. Verse 11, pain. The words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. What is the point of this proverb? It's that God must speak to us and his word 
sometimes hurts. He speaks through his word, verse 9 and 10, the wisdom that's been collected and searched and gathered together, that can be said of the, of the whole Bible, the word of God given to us, and thankfully translated into our own language. Here we have it. But why does it say that the, the words of the wise are like goads and nails, firmly embedded nails? Well, a goad in the ancient world, and I guess it, in modern day farming, is a cattle prod, which they would use to keep the cattle moving along and direct their course, keep them going along the, the right path. And nails, firmly embedded nails, these are things that penetrate, they go deep, they hold the truth in place, they keep it firm. And this is how God's word must function in our lives if we're going to revere him. We're going to have to accept God's word as a goad that will keep me going on the right path and a nail that will go in deep but hold the truth in place. This is how God's word functions. David Gibson has written a very fine book on Ecclesiastes and he says, you will know that you know God when sometimes what he says makes you weep as he humbles your pride, reverses your expectations, upsets your priorities, offends your behaviour, challenges your thinking. Can I ask, do you know God like that? In such a way that when he speaks to you through his word, you let it go in deep. It might upset you, but if you let it go in deep, it will change you. Because it is the word of the living God. Some of you may remember the film The Stepford Wives, uh, a kind of bizarre male fantasy in which a town was developed where all the women were actually robots. All the wives were robots, made to look perfect and uh, cook great meals and keep the house clean. But they were robots and they never were able to answer back the husbands. And as the film unfolds, it becomes clear that although this is a sort of strange male fantasy, it's actually uh, deeply unrewarding because if you don't have someone who can answer you back, you don't have a relationship. You just have a robot. And many people in our culture want God to be a bit like the Stepford Wives. A God who meets my needs when I want, but he never answers me back. He doesn't have his own point of view. He can't challenge me. That is a Stepford God, and you can't have a relationship with it. The first thing we need to do if we're going to remember God to revere him is let his words speak to us, correct us like a goad, and go in deep like the firmly embedded nails. Now, why would we hear the Bible and let it pierce our heart like that? Second point, perspective. Look at verse 13 again, please. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Conclusion of the book, we've got to fear God, keep his commandments, because this is the duty of man. Actually, I think our translation has let us down at that point. It literally says this. This is all humankind. This is all of humanity. So let me read it again. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is all humanity. Now that's richer. This isn't just about you doing your duty. This is about you being you. This is what you were made for, to fear God and keep his commands. To know God, to enjoy him to bring him glory with your life. That's what we were made for, it's saying. If you think of a fish swimming in the water, 
going on its way, darting around, happy, free. The same fish brought up on the riverbank is lying in the air, choking, gasping, flipping around and dying. You think about a bird flying through the air, catching the currents, swooping, gliding, it's majestic. But you see that same bird fall into the water and see it writhing and rolling and going down to its grave. These are images of a human being without God. Without God, we're like the bird in the water or the fish in the air. We're like planets that are detached from their orbit, spinning out of control into chaos and darkness. Therefore, we need to fear God and keep his commandments. Now, being afraid of God, fearing God, what is this? An old writer called Charles Bridges said, fear of God is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends themselves humbly and carefully to their father's law. Affectionate reverence. To revere God, but also to love him. So let me ask this morning, what is your posture toward God? How do you view him? Do you see him as one that you have affectionate reverence for? Perhaps some don't feel they can relate to God with affection. You just don't see him as someone you could love. He's just distant. If you can't see God like that, then you can't imagine God delighting in you, looking at you with affection and loving regard. Yet that's how the Bible says he does look at you. You imagine him as cold, disinterested, maybe hostile. You see him as out there, great, but not near. You don't see how God could actually be interested in you. That's too far away. Now there are others for whom the pendulum in their view of God has swung way out the other way. Now for them, God is a buddy. He's a helper, he's a friend. He's there when I need him. He's on the end of the phone. He's been brought down to your level, but he's kind of become your personal assistant. That's not the fear of the Lord either. That's very, very casual. Proper fear of God brings together affection and reverence that we come to know him like that. So, Ecclesiastes says, we remember our creator in the days of our youth before the days of trouble come, and we remember him by uh, accepting the pain of his word, by uh, adopting the perspective of God as one who uh, we fear, an attitude of, of affection and reverence. And finally, we should fear God because of who he is. And, and, and it says here that there's a judgment coming. Verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. God will bring everything into judgment. Therefore, our lives are a big preparation. I wonder if you've ever had one of those dreams where you are in a high pressure situation and you're not ready. I think they call them performance anxiety dreams. Students have dreams like these about exams. Uh, people have dreams like this about job interviews. You turn up and you're, you're naked. <laughs> or you haven't prepared at all. Pastors have dreams about turning up at a meeting with no sermon. I had a dream uh, last year, this is a true story, I had a dream that there was a funeral at Holy Trinity Platt Church, and I turned up with the other mourners, and I then discovered that I was supposed to lead the funeral service, and I was completely unprepared. And in the dream, I started to panic and I was trying to get across the room to a friend of mine called Pete Horlock, because I thought, he's a real vicar, he'll know what to do. 
And I was trying to get to him, but every time I went, people were singing and getting in the way, and I was getting more. And I knew it was running down to the end of the verse, and I had to get to him. And, I was just, and then I woke up, needed the loo, you know. <laughs> I wasn't ready. Now, many people have such dreams. What about those who walk through the whole of life and are actually not ready for the most important tests of all? The most significant of moment of all, when we face God and have to give account for the life that we've lived. Are you ready for that? Verse 14 is absolutely terrifying. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. God's light will shine on our lives and there will be no secrets left. I think this should make us tremble. What would he think of my life? Of yours? We are facing a terrible judgment. Are we ready for it? But you know, there is light and joy even here because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, God shone his light on human sin and exposed it, and a terrible judgment was unleashed upon Jesus, the one human who had never sinned. And so, for those who trust and believe in Jesus, the penalty and judgment has been paid and taken away, and there's no judgment left for you. At the cross, Jesus took upon himself a fearsome judgment, so terrifying that the earth shook, the sky went dark, creation could not bear to look on. And yet that same cross is the picture of fierce love, a love and affection so great that he took upon himself the judgment that we deserved and gives us freedom and forgiveness. So if you are a Christian here, that Jesus took your, your penalty away there at the cross. Jesus brought every deed of yours into judgment and took the, the, the pain himself, including every hidden thing. So let's, let's resolve today to live as people who've been set free from sin, people who are now servants of Jesus, people who are slaves to righteousness, who are so grateful for all that he's done for us that we want to fear God and keep his commandments. An old writer called Phillips Brooks said, duty makes us do things well, but love makes us do them beautifully. Duty makes us do things well, but love makes us do them beautifully. How are you living? Are you living out of just doing your duty? Or out of love? Love for God, love for Jesus who gave himself for you and makes us do things beautifully. Let me ask in closing, we're gonna to come to the Lord's table. Is there an area of your life right now that you're aware of you need to bring it into God's light, submit to him and start obeying him? Remember your creator in the days of your youth and revere him. Let's pray.